Locked away in attics, basements, and dark corners across the world are stories of beings and beasts that hide in the night. These are those stories. This is the Sleepless in Suburbia podcast. I'm Brooke, case manager for our team, and this is the audio recap for case 127. The streets are alive with the sound of ghosts. Sitting at James's hockey practice, knee-length coat zipped up to the collar and fleece blanket wrapped around me like a burrito, and I was still freezing. A rogue puck slammed into the boards in front of me. I jumped, sending the phone from my lap onto the metal bleachers below me. With a sigh, I picked up the phone, thankful for a phone case strong enough to survive even me. Once inside the Sleepless in Suburbia inbox, I fired off a, you're welcome, email to a suburban who was excited to receive her thank you for your review of our podcast stickers in the mail and marked as spam an email wanting to enhance an anatomical region that I just don't possess. A bit more scrolling and my eyes came to rest on this headline. Ghost emoji. Haunted gated community. Yes, the entire neighborhood. Flushed face emoji. Well, what did we have here? I thought to myself, flinching as James smashed a teammate into the boards. Good gravy, I hissed through clenched teeth, tapping to open the emoji-decorated email. Happy spooky season! I recently moved into the Lazar Park community, where the neighbors living and dead are amazing. You read that correctly. Exploding head emoji. It seems like there are just about as many ghost neighbors as there are living, breathing ones. There's the blonde girl in knee-length socks and a plaid skirt calling for her dog, Banjo. And near the gated entrance, people see an old man carrying an umbrella, standing, looking up at the sky. Last week, I saw a woman pushing an old-fashioned-looking stroller down the middle of the street. She vanished into a passing minivan. Not like she got into it, like she disappeared as it drove through her. I'd love for you to come meet my neighbors, especially the dead ones. Flushed emoji face, Rebecca. Property details. The Lazar Park neighborhood in Chesterfield sits only a few miles west of the Missouri River. The town is a quiet one, nestled in a sprawling metropolitan region. The community is gated, with 24-7 security managing the gate from inside a gazebo-looking guard building. All deliveries, guests, and maintenance providers had to check in and have residents' approval prior to entering the neighborhood. Within the tall black gates of Lazar Park are 150 homes spaced out along gas lamp-lined streets, two small lakes, a golf course, four playgrounds of varying themes, Lazar Park Clubhouse, and the Lakeside Day Spa. The homes come with quite a hefty price tag. You're not putting down roots in this neighborhood for less than $1.2 million. The homes themselves, well, they're more of estates, with each home sitting on at least an acre of land. Rebecca's home sat solo at the end of a perfectly manicured cul-de-sac. White stone pillars held up a large balcony on the front of the white and gray stone building. Spiral topiaries lined the expansive front terrace leading up to the huge rounded walnut front door. 
The home was nearly 9,000 square feet, with a wine cellar, five bedrooms, seven bathrooms, a billiards room, and a kitchen that my friend Nash would sell a kidney for. Every space within the gates of Lazar Park were curated to perfection. Not a single blade of grass out of place, autumn leaf on a sidewalk, or chipped speck of paint. Team update. Claire had a pretty intense dream a couple nights ago, waking up shortly before 4 a.m., breathing heavy and dripping with sweat. In the dream, she shivered, her back against an icy smooth surface. Above her, a light pierced her eyes, washing the room in a glow she couldn't squint into focus. Steel gray straps cut into her wrist, making it impossible for her to sit up. She squirmed, finding her ankles restrained as well. A gray face with indistinguishable features leaned over her right side, blocking the blinding light from overhead. Who are you? Claire asked as a pinch in her left arm caused her to wince. What do you... Warmth ran through Claire's veins as she slipped into unconsciousness in her dream. In real life, she jerked awake in her bed. Was this just a dream or a missing piece from the night in Nomad's Wood? I am back to not sleeping, which works out kind of great since Lo is also not sleeping making it possible for us to check out every last vegan recipe known to the internet on Pinterest. So if anyone has any tips for getting even just an average night's sleep, we're all ears. Lark is making big moves, opting to transition from the dorms into her very first apartment with her bestie, Marie. They're going to be using plastic totes for tables and likely digging through my boxes of old dishes, but the space is 100% theirs. I'm the super lame aunt whose housewarming gift for them was a slow cooker and a vacuum. Oh, and a plunger and toolkit, because us ladies have to know how to fix our own darn things. Mainly because I've listened to entirely too many true crime podcasts, and it's always the maintenance guy. Ford talked poor, should have known better, Prue, into co-piloting a mission to prank her older brother, Kiefer. Apparently, Prue didn't learn from my peekaboo doll mishap. I'm not sure of the exact details since Kiefer isn't speaking to any of us right now, but I know it involved a large, very real-looking spider and a remote-control car. It may or may not have caused Kiefer to back his car out of his driveway and into a ditch. Prue almost cried when I asked her about it. So, Kiefer... If you're listening to this, I had zero part of that mission. Historical Society Research Lark and Prue waved as they made their way up the wooden steps to the Chesterfield Historical Association. Inside, they were greeted by a vibrant woman with platinum blonde hair, rosy pink cheeks, and intense, glittery lime green eyeliner. She smiled wide as the two approached, revealing a streak of magenta lipstick across her front tooth. Good morning, Prue beamed. We're looking for the archives regarding specifically the Lazar Park area. The woman swiveled in her chair. Down this hall, second door on the right, is a great starting point. It holds our records of the 1894 cyclone outbreak. Outbreak? Lark said, pulling a small notebook from her jacket pocket. Yes, several tornadoes on the same day. 
The Lazar Park area was one of the hardest hit. Hundreds of people died in that part of the state in the span of hours, the woman replied, voice solemn. Clark and Prue settled into a square wooden table situated in the middle of a room bordered with metal filing cabinets. Prue gasped softly, resting her hand on the side of her face. The devastation those poor people didn't even see coming. April 27, 1894, was a normal Friday for people in Chesterfield. Children ran around the playground chasing their friends, shoppers strolled in and out of shops, and mothers pushed babies in strollers. But by late afternoon, the sky darkened, and around 4 p.m., temperatures in the region dropped quickly. Then, by just after 5 p.m., it looked dark as night with ominous green and dark clouds rolling through the sky. People rushed along the street, hoping to make it home before the storm descended on them. Shortly after 6 p.m., the wind spun up, maxing out at over 80 miles per hour, creating the perfect atmosphere for a gigantic F-4 destroyer. In less than an hour, the tornado left in its wake only a handful of homes, businesses, and other buildings. In total, this tornado did over $10 million in damage, which is over $307 million in today's money. 6,000 people were left homeless. Over 1,500 people were injured. And tragically, 265 people lost their lives. For days, the streets were full of chaos. Residents band together to clean up the wreckage, while others helped look for those still missing from the storms. Penelope, a young wife and mother of one small child, documented in her diary the heartbreak in her city following the devastating storm. Here is a passage of her writing. The streets run with tears for those missing and worrying for those not yet found. I'm heartsick for those whipped back and forth in the sea of limbo. Will or won't their loved ones return with life still in their lungs? Each of the three days since the cyclone, the same woman in a tattered skirt approaches me, begging me please if I've seen her Emily, a girl of just seven, who snuck from the cellar to find her beloved dog. Alas, I have not seen her, but I look for her as I push Walter in his buggy. Grown men, strapping and proud, sob in their hands on the street. This morning I watched as an adult child removed his elderly mother from the rubble of their childhood home. The power of nature feels so spiteful sometimes. I pray to our Heavenly Father for a continued strength for our broken township. Lark wiped a tear from the corner of her eye as she finished the excerpt. Over 250 people gone like that. She snapped her fingers together. Here one second and gone the next. It wouldn't be surprising to find a lost soul or two trapped here, Prue nodded, scrolling a news article. Some of the missing never had their bodies recovered. Sometimes life really isn't fair, Lark said, pacing the room. Prue nodded. I know, kid. On-site interview recap. Your home is stunning. Claire said as Rebecca guided us through the grand foyer with high ceilings and chandeliers dripping with crystals. Thank you so much for saying, Rebecca's eyes creased slightly at the corner when she smiled. 
If you ladies have comfy shoes on, we can do this walking tour style. I looked down at my well-worn Converse. These shoes weren't made for walking. Sounds great, I said. Let me grab my sneakers and Gus, back in a jiff, Rebecca said before disappearing down a hallway. Wow, Claire mouthed, spinning in a slow circle, taking in the artwork-adorned walls. A few moments later, Rebecca reappeared carrying a pair of Nikes in the leash of a perfectly combed golden retriever. We followed her out on the front terrace, where she sat on a carved stone bench to tie her shoes. You ladies don't mind if Gus joins us on our tour, do you? I looked up from where I had two handfuls of floppy puppy ears. Absolutely not. Who's the bestest boy? Rebecca waved to a man in joggers and a windbreaker as he sprinted past us on the sidewalk. Most residents of Lazar Park had experiences, but not all of them were willing to admit their experiences were paranormal. Some chucked it up to a power surge or trick of the light, with others ignoring the encounter altogether, causing the neighborhood to be divided. The friends of the ghosties and those with adverse ghost reactions. We stood in the corner of Flum and Market with pruned hedges and colorful splashes of mums and oak barrel planters. It was hard to imagine that a street that could be found on any page of Better Homes and Garden also hosted its fair share of ghost sightings. Down there by the lavender mums, a man walks out from behind the box hedge wall into the middle of the street. There he stops, pulls out a pocket watch, and vanishes, Rebecca said scratching Gus under his hunter green collar. My friend Carly lives in a gabled home at the end of the third driveway. At least once a week, she's woken up in the middle of the night by a man's voice yelling for help. Is there any other activity in this area? Lo asked, shielding her eyes from the sun. We followed Rebecca down a cobblestone alley with box hedge walls on both sides. The labyrinth-feeling pathway opened up into a grassy area with a splash pad and playground equipment that looked like it was plucked directly out of a storybook. Gingerbread-themed playhouses circled the playground equipment, styled to look like pieces of candy. The swings will sometimes sway back and forth on their own. I've heard children's voices and laughter when there weren't any children in sight, Rebecca said. Oh, and the McMartin twins' daughters Nora and Natalie got locked in that gingerbread home right there, the third one from the end. Rebecca pointed to a playhouse with gingerbread walls, pink frosting roof, and glitter everywhere. The girls, who were four years old at the time, were playing with a play kitchen inside the house when the wooden gingerbread door slammed shut. Natalie tried to open the door, panicking when it wouldn't budge. Mrs. McMartin and two other mothers from the playground tried to open the door, but it was stuck. Inside, one of the girls wailed, We don't bite! Go! We don't want to play with you anymore! The adults continued struggling with the door, hearing one of the girls say, Go away! You're mean! You can't play with us! Working together, the moms got both of the twins out of a tiny window. Nora was inconsolable. Blood smeared across her forearm from teeth marks indented and broken into her skin. The girls described a little boy with black hair and bruises across his pale face as the child who'd bitten Nora. 
No one on the playground matched that description. But as the McMartins walked towards the labyrinth-style entrance to the park, they noticed the once-stuck playhouse door was wide open. Suddenly, Gus yanked on his leash, lunging forward, the fur at his neck rising up. He barked once, taking a couple steps backward before slowly lowering himself to the grass. It's okay, buddy, Rebecca said, Gus releasing a sound that was part growl and part whine. It's not just him. Dogs don't seem to like this park very much. We don't want to stress him out. Let's head to the next hot spot, Ford said, turning towards the entrance. A few moments later, we were on a small side street leading to the Lazar Park Clubhouse, where several residents have seen a blonde girl walking along the side of the road. She's crying, calling out the name Banjo. When asked if she needs help, she turns her pale, tear-streaked face towards the person and says, Have you seen my dog? He's white with brown spots. As soon as her sentence completes, she vanishes into thin air. Rebecca personally knew over 12 people who'd had the exact same experience, typically happening right around dusk or dawn. A large butterfly garden separated the clubhouse and the lakeside day spa, a building that looked like a chateau belonging in Italy instead of near the Missouri River. The day spa offered countless services from haircuts and mud baths to gold leaf facial treatments and float therapy tanks. Some residents didn't find the spa as relaxing as it should be. People have reported having the sheet yanked off of them in treatment rooms. In three of the four float tanks, guests hear children's laughter. And there, Rebecca pointed to a small pool. The sign on the door read, Saltwater Therapy. There, people have been splashed and even dunked underwater. The entity physically pushed the person under the water, Claire asked. Yes, it happened to a member of my jogging club. Rebecca looked out the window at Gus, who sprinted wildly after a ball that Ford had thrown. Kipper hasn't been back to the spa since it happened, and that was well over a year ago. Is it possible that some of these experiences involve people slipping on the bottom of the pool, I followed up? Rebecca shook her head. She said one second she was stretching out her hips, totally alone in the pool and the room. Then it felt like someone used all of their weight to push her down on top of her head. Yikes, Claire said. Anything else in this area? Rebecca shrugged, brushing her fringe bangs from her eyes. Not really. I mean, I guess just the phantom cat that follows people home from the spa. Other haunted happenings. Some homes have electrical disturbances like flickering lights and batteries that drain really quickly without explanation. Footsteps are sometimes heard moving down streets and sidewalks, but upon investigation, no one's there. Sugar packets are found tossed around the tables in the country club restaurant when staff members arrive to open the following day. Golf balls go missing from the golf course's pro shop. Shadows are seen moving through the neighborhood at night without a living person being present. The disembodied voice of a woman crying can be heard in several places around the property. People have heard, excuse me, while in the lakeside spa, but when they turn, no one else is in the room with them. 
Residents hear the sound of sirens blaring through the streets, but there's nothing nearby to make the sound. And finally, people report feeling watched by an unseen presence. Investigation recap. What do you guys think? I asked. Shining my flashlight on the Lazar Park community map. Three sections and meet back at the golf course parking lot after we wrap. Sounds like a plan to me, Prue said, wrapping her arm around Ford's shoulder. You're with me. I have the extra large first aid kit. Lo pulled three research packs from her trunk, handing the only one with a red ribbon around the zipper to Prue. Prue ran the red ribbon through her fingers, a confused look on her face. I know you were just joking, but this one has the most robust first aid kit I could find outside of a hospital. Lo shrugged, handing Claire another pack. Funny, Ford quipped, turning, catching the edge of a bright yellow cement parking stop. Thankfully, regaining her balance before blood spilled. This case's research packs included digital voice recorder, digital camera, full-spectrum video camera, complete first aid kit with a few extra supplies in Ford and Prue's, two flashlights, two pairs of gloves, battery kit, walkie-talkie, lifeguard whistle, chapstick, map of the community printed from the website, and a ball in case the kids or pets wanted to play. Walkie-talkies crackled to life. Ford and Prue at our research starting point, walking towards the circle drive of the clubhouse now, Prue said. The night wasn't as quiet as we'd like, but in suburbia, you have to roll with the sounds. In the distance, we heard cars driving past to and from their Saturday evening plans. Occasionally, a garage door opened or the heavy groan of a front gate cut through the night. We'd have to be extra careful with audio evidence with such a high risk of cross-contamination. Let's hold here for a second, Prue said, reaching into the research pack and pulling out a red kickball. Ford nodded. I've got the recorder. At nearly midnight, they weren't worried about cars driving to the clubhouse, so they plopped down in the middle of the cobblestone driveway, rolling the ball back and forth. You're welcome to play with us, Ford said, giving the ball a few bounces before sending it back to Prue. It's a brand new ball. My sons and I picked it out the store today just for you. Several minutes passed, the ball rolling to and fro. Nothing moved in the shadows beneath the gas lamp streetlights. No little girl with blonde curls, knee socks, and plaid skirt. The only sound, the occasional rustle of leaves scattering along the chilled wind. Ford leaned forward to pick up the digital recorder from its place on the cobblestone when something caught her ear. Prue tucked her legs beneath her to stand, asking, ready to head through the garden, Shh, shh, Ford said, grabbing Prue's hand. Listen, she mouthed. The sound was faint, not as though it was in the distance, but as if it was being whispered very close to them. Prue and Ford sat motionless in the drive, listening until the sound came to a stop. Quickly, Ford rewound the digital recorder, hearing audio evidence of what they'd heard live. Here is the EVP.
Did you hear a child crying? Flashlight game? Prue asked. Ford nodded, pulling a flashlight from the research pack. Flashlight game. She said, unscrewing the top of the blue flashlight and setting it beside them where a third person could sit. Pushing the power button, the flashlight sprang to life. Prue tapped the flashlight and it flickered. It was ready. All right, kiddo, we heard you. If you're still here, play a game with us. This blue flashlight is set up for you. You can use it to communicate. Touch it once for yes and twice for no, Prue said. Are you still here? Ford asked. The flashlight flashed once. Thank you, Prue said. Were you the one crying? A single flash from the flashlight. You're doing really great. Are you looking for something? Ford asked, eyes trained on the flashlight. A little pause, and then a single flash. Is it your kitty cat? Prue followed up. Two flashes blinked in the night. How about your puppy? Are you looking for your puppy? Asked Ford. They watched the flashlight. Nothing at first. Nothing for a long pause. Then a single flash. Can we help you look? Prue asked, looking around them. The flashlight set glowing, no hint of a flicker. We're happy to help you, Ford urged. The box hedge behind Prue rustled, went still, and then rustled again. Climbing to her feet, Ford headed towards the rustling shrub. With just a few feet distance between her and the shrub, it went still. As she turned back to Prue, the flashlight went berserk, flashing in rapid succession. On the opposite side of the community, Lo and Lark were having their own experience. This entrance gives me the creeps, Lark said, running her hand across the wall of tall green hedges. Lo laughed. It makes me feel like I'm in Labyrinth with David Bowie. Lark wrinkled her nose. What's that? You're kidding me, right? Lo said, mouth dropping open. Lark shook her head. I wish the goblins would come and take you away, right now, Lo quoted, her eyes wide. Lark shrugged, still nothing. The classic 1986 movie, directed by Jim Henson. Judging by Lark's continued blank stare, she had zero clue what Lo was talking about. Lo blew out a frustrated breath. Remind me to let your aunt know how much she's failed you. I'm sure she'll be thrilled to hear it, Lark said as the labyrinth pathway opened up into the storybook playground. I'll take the swings, Lark said, crossing the cushy play surface painted like the Candyland game board. Low watched Lark for a second before making her way to the gingerbread playhouse where the twins had been trapped and bit. Working her way through the small front door, inside was beautiful with fake candy details and the coolest-looking play kitchen Lowe had ever seen. On the floor, knee-resting on a cookie cupboard, Lowe began an EVP session. So we hear from a friend that you're a little bit ornery, Lowe said, hitting play on the digital recorder. It's not very nice to hurt people. 
Lowe continued working her way through EVP session questions, receiving no responses as she listened back through the recording. As she began to pack up her equipment to join Lark outside, something shifted. The night was chilly, but the air inside the gingerbread house dropped drastically. Lowe breathed out, seeing her breath hang in the air before her. A sharp pain jolted through Lowe's lower back, causing her to jump, smacking her head on the low ceiling. Her stomach rolled, fear working its way from the depths of her gut to her pounding heart. She wasn't alone anymore. Something was with her. Another jolt of pain, this time on the back of her calf. Grabbing the pack, she slid towards the door, leaning back just in time to knock it smacked in the nose by it as it slammed shut in her face. She pushed on the door. It was jammed, not giving an inch as she leaned her shoulder into it. Leaning back, she placed her feet on the door, pushing forward with all the strength that she had in her legs. Still, nothing. She tried again, focusing so intently on driving the door open, she nearly missed the tap-tap on her shoulder. She jumped away from the touch, side-slamming into a candy table. As she rubbed her side, the air directly in front of her face dropped to biting cold, stinging her skin. Through the bitterness, a voice whispered, This. Here's what Lo caught on her digital recorder. Lo, come in all things, screamed, tears burning behind her eyes. With a bang, the playhouse door flung open, with rattling force. Scrambling out of the small gingerbread house on all fours, Lo scooted away until she was sitting on the sidewalk near a sparkly orange bench. Across the playground, Lark sat on a swing, her feet hanging a few inches from the ground. Blissfully unaware of the gingerbread house attack and also of the fact that the swing next to her swung gently back and forth on its own while all the other swings sat motionless. Near the front of the community, Claire and I waved to Marty, the gate security guard for the evening. He gave us a wink before shoving a Dorito in his mouth and turning back to a small TV flickering with a black and white TV show. On opposite sides of the street, we made our way up and down the roads winding through Lazar Park. We were just about to head back to the clubhouse when footsteps clicked through the night, working their way towards us. My head snapped up, looking up and down the street, expecting to see another jogger or maybe a sneaky teen heading out after curfew, but the road and the sidewalks were empty. I looked at Claire, who nodded. She'd heard it too. Click, click, growing closer. I turned, facing the opposite direction, walking backwards for a few steps. In the middle of the road... A couple of driveways away, something moved towards us in the street. Click, click. I tripped backwards, coming to stop with Claire at my side. Coming into view, under the circular glow of a gas lamp streetlight, was a slightly translucent woman in a puffed sleeve dress with a bell-shaped skirt. Her heeled shoes clicked along the street as she pushed a baby buggy with large black wheels towards us. Out from underneath the streetlight, she was barely distinguishable. 
under the circle of yellow light, her hazy shape reemerged. Claire and I stood motionless. The woman, now close enough, we could hear the babbling of a baby within the buggy and the woman singing softly. Her eyes looked up from the baby buggy, not exactly at us, more through us. In a few more steps, she would run into both of us. Click, click, and with just a couple feet before the buggy rammed into me, the street around us was vacant. Where'd they go? Claire breathed, turning in a circle. Back to their time plane, I whispered. Wrap up. There's a lot we can't explain, I said, pushing stop on the last EVP. But the spirits that seem to be hanging out here don't give off a malevolent vibe. Rebecca blew out a long breath. That's good news. I nodded. But it's possible that some of these are souls stuck in this limbo space because they were taken from the living plane in such a traumatic and swift way. Okay, so not good news, Rebecca said. Lo gave Rebecca's arm a squeeze. We'd like to have our friend Nick walk through the neighborhood, assisting those who'd like to cross over to do so. Rebecca raised an eyebrow, tipping her head to the side. He's kind of like the Pied Piper for Lost Souls, I grinned. He guides them to the light if that's where they'd like to be. If they'd rather stay, they're welcome to do so. Rebecca nodded. Oh, and we have one more piece of evidence for you, Ford said, pulling earbuds from her pocket. We can't say definitively that it's paranormal, but we didn't hear this live during the investigation. Rebecca slid the earbuds into her ears as Ford hit play. I'll play that EVP for you now so you can hear what Rebecca did. A cat? Rebecca asked. It's such a loud meow. I can't imagine we'd missed it live, but it's possible, Prue said. We captured it walking through the butterfly garden, going to the spa. Our investigation wrapped up 10 days ago, with Nick working his magic six nights ago. At this time, we are going to close case 127. The streets are alive with the sound of ghosts. But I let Rebecca know when I chatted with her last night that we'd be happy to send Nick back out or come back ourselves if anyone else gets hurt by the entity on the playground. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening behind the scenes, you can stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Sleepless Suburbia Pod. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our new case every Tuesday. And if you like the show, please take just a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a huge help, and it makes it possible for other spooky-minded people to find the show. Oh, and happy Halloween, everybody.